if Pac-Man and Tetris had a baby, this would be it. Welcome to Game and Cast. A podcast about dedicated handheld retro gaming. With your host, Ryan Clater. Hey, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that last episode with David Schmeidler. What an incredible life story he has. And if you haven't listened to it, I would suggest you go back and take a listen to episode one. But hey, this is episode number two of the Game and Cast podcast with your host, me, Ryan Clater. So today for this episode, we've got something a little different. Not an interview, but a game review. I'm going to be going in-depth into one particular game, the Nintendo Game & Watch multi-screen game called Squish. (laughs) So I was surprised at the amount of information that I started amassing on this game, and so I tried to organize this in sort of an outline. I'm going to start with an overview of the game and move into its appearance. Then I'll talk about the gameplay the artwork, a little bit about the pricing, and finally some closing remarks. So let's get started with an overview of the game. So Squish is sort of a time-based puzzle game. And with that said, I've never played anything quite like it before. You play as a little pear-shaped guy named Ziggy the Maze Man. And no, he looks nothing like that Ziggy from the American comic strip. And yes, that really is his given name as per the Squish instruction booklet. As the player, you're trapped inside a 5x5 matrix with walls that form a maze. However, these walls are moving. (laughs) And if you get trapped between a maze wall and the edges of the room, well, you get squished. So pretty much all the action is happening on the bottom of the two screens. What's going on with the upper screen? Well, that's essentially where all the necessary information resides, like score, lives, and game type, A or B. So you might be thinking to yourself, self, that doesn't sound like it would be enough information to necessitate an entire second LCD screen. Well, shrewd listener, you would be right. However, a ridiculous amount of screen real estate is dedicated to a massive central character that sits right in the middle of the upper screen. This fluffy little fellow's name is Grumpy, and according to the Squish instruction booklet lore, he is the one behind the scenes controlling the direction of the maze on the screen below. He's positioned in the middle of the control room, which governs the direction the maze is moving, up, down, left, and right. This also serves as a split-second preview of which direction the maze will move next, as the maze movement pauses slightly before shifting directions. All right, that's about the best and briefest overview I can muster about this weird little game. So let's talk about its appearance. Squish is a Nintendo multi-screen game, one of those lovely numbers that folds like a clamshell. The casing itself is an unusual sort of aqua teal color, and the front metal faceplate features drawn cartoons of the game characters. When you open it, there's one screen on the case half below and another one above for two screens total. Instead of a more traditional D-pad on the left and a button on the right, there are two bi-directional rocker switches. The one on the bottom left is oriented in a vertical arrangement to control up and down movement, while the rocker switch on the bottom right is set horizontally to control left and right movement. 
Aside from that, the rest of the appearance is pretty standard Game & Watch fare, with three small black buttons for Game A, B, and Time, and a couple of smaller inset silver buttons near those for Alarm and ACL, or System Reset. Okay, let's get into the meat of this game review, the gameplay. When I first started playing Squish, one of the first things that took some getting used to was the button configuration. I imagine I'm not alone in being most familiar with the D-pad for directional movement. However, the D-pad is essentially exploded in two parts for Squish, with the vertical movements on the left and the lateral movements on the right. At first, this broke my brain a little, but as I've been playing more Squish and progressed to higher and faster levels, I'm convinced this was a great design decision on the part of Nintendo and its engineers. The reason for this is that as you progress through the game and the difficulty and speed both increase, I can imagine it would be even more difficult to move old Ziggy with the speed and proficiency needed with a single thumb. However, with the directional arrangement separated over twice as many digits, you can actually navigate the constant movements of the maze with twice the efficiency. Now, like most handheld and tabletop games of this era, there are two levels of difficulty. The first of which, Game A, is the game as I've been describing thus far. You, the player, Ziggy, start in the middle and get moved along the maze tiles as the entire floor plan scoots in the direction Grumpy commands it. It's a good strategy to continually maneuver yourself back toward the center tile because if you move too far in the direction the maze walls are appearing, like too close to the outer wall of the maze, when the direction changes you might not have enough time to recalibrate yourself and your movement to avoid the walls that could perform some of that titular squishing. You gain points in game A, not for each movement of the maze or your character, but for every second of time you're not getting squished. The movement and wall configurations start out relatively slow and easy, but before too long you're having to make faster and more calculated decisions based on the more complex maze walls that appear. So game A is awfully fun, and I don't typically see a lot of repeated maze arrangements, which also keeps the game fun and interesting. But let's also talk about game B. Most LCD games of this era will simply increase the speed of the game or frequency of obstacles to make the experience more challenging right off the bat. Squish, on the other hand, created a new game experience. In game B, not only are you trying to avoid being squished by the moving maze that Grumpy conducts, but now there are four additional characters located in little pockets just outside the four corners of the maze matrix. These little dudes are called the maze bugs, and according to the Squish instruction manual, you are charged with, quote, zapping out, end quote, the maze bugs, who basically look like smaller versions of Grumpy. In order to zap out the maze bugs, you need to navigate old Ziggy to the respective corners and move an additional increment toward them. This makes the maze bug disappear, at which point you need to scurry around to the remaining maze bugs to zap them out as well. All this needs to be done before any of the maze bugs rematerialize, which they will do after a diminishing period of time as the game progresses. I should probably also mention that Game B's scoring is a little bit different than Game A. In Game B, every time you complete the zapping out of all four maze bugs, you're awarded a particular amount of points based on how quickly you zap them out. Doing all of this while the floor is moving and threatening to squish you is no easy task and takes some real concentration, especially as the game gets going and the pace speeds up. 
providing the player with some real anxious energy. Nintendo Game & Watch games will frequently have a bonus at the 300 point threshold. In Squish, there is no scoring bonus for achieving 300 points. Usually that comes in the form of doubling the player's points moving forward until the next life is lost. However, if you've lost any lives, achieving 300 points in Squish will wipe your losses clean. The highest score you can display on a game of Squish is 999 points. If you surpass that, it simply rolls the score and begins counting from one point again. An interesting feature is that if you get to 1,300 points, basically rolling the score over and climbing back up to 300, it will, once again, wipe your lives lost. For very good players, this can be a limitation of the game, as the speed and difficulty eventually plateau. So if you're able to consistently accrue another 1,000 points without losing three lives, it's possible to play indefinitely. While my high score currently tops out at 1,370 points, I've not reached the Zen Master of Squish status to the point where I can continue indefinitely. But I hear that it can happen. <laughs> okay, so that's the odd and entertaining gameplay of Squish. Let's talk about the artwork on this quirky title. Just like everything about this game, it's weird and it's endearing. The characters are drawn on the cover plate of this game, and they're pretty clear and distinctive. But with that said, the character design leaves a little bit to be desired. Granted, when they show up on the screen, most of them are pretty small, so the detail needs to be minimal. But for that giant, grumpy character in the middle of the top screen, I feel like they could have done something more. Speaking of that metal faceplate, most of it is covered with a nice, flat, screen-printed color. Not only for the background, which is white, but the characters as well. But they've also left some really nice show-through in certain portions, like the maze walls, which have some spikes on them, are left in a majority of the metallic metal color showing through, which I think is really great. And of course, they've highlighted Game & Watch and the multi-screen logo in metallic as well. When you pop open these Game & Watch games, typically you have a little more artwork inside, like around the button area. Not the case in Squish. <laughs> All you have are a couple of horizontal lines above the rocker controls, and that's pretty much it. There's a typical pill-shaped title, Squish, at the top of the upper screen, which echoes the font seen on the faceplate, and then another pill at the bottom, which lets you know this is made by Nintendo. But that's about it. A little lackluster on the inside plates for artwork. As far as the screens are concerned, I mentioned the small size of the characters, which I think is necessary in this type of game. But there's also some non-LCD artwork used to set the scene. So this is basically set in a factory. And you see Grumpy at the top with some screens which light up up, down, left and right so we know which direction it's going. But then these are nicely encased in some television screens and some tubing as you would find in a factory, lots of buttons placed about. And similarly on the bottom, the non-LCD color artwork is strewn about, reinforcing this factory setting. Sometimes these Game & Watch games have a couple different levels of non-LCD artwork, but Squish is not one of them. The color artwork here is restricted to a single insert. So while the artwork has some redeeming qualities with the metallic showing through in portions of the artwork on the faceplate, as well as some of the color factory environment artwork, ultimately I think art falls a little bit short on this game. Alright, so if you're in the market for one of these things, 
what can you expect to pay for it? Let's talk about pricing. Now, these are vintage electronics, so pricing fluctuates quite a bit based on availability, how desirable the title is, and how complete the item is with box, instruction manual, etc. But I'll try to give you a ballpark figure for what you can expect to pay for one of these. As a raw, rough estimate here in the beginning of 2021, I'd say you're likely to pay between 75 and 100 US dollars for a working squish in reasonable condition. I poured over the recent sold listings on eBay, and while there were outliers on either side, most seemed to be in this range. Now, before we go on, we should probably discuss briefly the fact that there are a number of different conditions in which collectors will look for games. The first term is loose, which means the game is on its own without any of the box or instructions that originally came with the game. Next condition up the hierarchical ladder of desirability and cost would be the game with the box. After that, you can pay even more for games complete in box, which means the box contains all materials originally packaged with the game. Styrofoam, instruction manual, batteries, leaflets, and all original materials. And finally, some collectors are even interested in finding that elusive sealed in box game, in which the game has never been opened, somehow hermetically frittered away for the past several decades. <laughs> now, I'm a collector who is far less interested in boxes than I am in actually playing these games, so I'll be focusing on the lower tier when discussing the pricing of these games, which is simply the loose, playable game. I've seen recent sold listings on eBay as low as 35 US dollars working, but in poor condition. For example, this particular game I'm referring to was missing a battery cover, the case clip which keeps the multi-screen game closed was broken off, Various parts of the game and plastic housing were cracked and just generally kind of banged up. But while it wasn't exactly pretty, it was a working squish for $35. On the other side, I've also seen some very clean, loose games go for over $100 US dollars. Okay, so let's go back to that rough estimate of $75 to $100 US dollars, which can seem like a lot. But I propose we take a little trip in the Wayback Machine to look at how these games were originally priced. I've seen archived 1985 Montgomery Ward Christmas catalogs from the United States, which listed Nintendo multi-screen games for $29.98. Granted, that was a few months before Squish was released in April of 1986, but I think that five-month time difference is pretty darn close for an original price estimate. So if we account for inflation, that... $29.98 translates into more than $72 by 2021 standards. I've also seen archived catalogs from the UK listing manufactured suggested retail prices for multi-screen games at around 24 British pounds, 23.95 to be precise. So if we pop that into the inflation calculator from Squish's year of release and bring that up to the present, that 24 pound game is equal to about 60 pounds today, which equates to roughly 82 US dollars. In fact, that British catalog was from 1983, so with a few extra years of inflation, that actually brings us closer to 90 US dollars retail. I think all this tells us a couple of things. First, when you account for inflation, I think it's interesting to understand the value of these games at the time. As a parent, this was not a frivolous purchase. If you're nabbing one of these for your kid, you'll be shelling out over 80 bucks for a Nintendo Game & Watch multi-screen by today's standards. And secondly, while the prices of these vintage electronics may seem expensive, when you account for inflation, surprisingly, 
the average price for one of these games has remained pretty steady. And finally, a couple of closing notes to wrap up this discussion on price. These estimates are in constant flux and difficult to accurately pinpoint. Even in the relatively short period of time I've been collecting these games, I've seen average sale prices increase by a surprising margin. And when budgeting for a game that you really want, don't forget that you'll likely have some shipping and auction fees on top of this. So depending upon where in the world the game is shipping from, there will likely be another 10 to 30 US dollars added to the game price. While all that may sound daunting, patient buyers can still find occasional deals. Making purchases in bulk can help too, like if a seller is getting rid of a collection of several games at once. And don't forget to exercise that make offer button on eBay, as many sellers are willing to take a little less than their asking price if you treat them respectfully. Okay, closing remarks time. Now, I was trying to conceptualize this whole review process and thinking, okay, I should end with a, a, a rank or a score, a certain number of stars or something. And, you know, to be honest, the game reviews I'm going to do on this show are games that I like. So I think everything would end up around eight or nine stars if I were doing some sort of ranking system. So I'm just going to toss that out the window. But at the start of the show, I said, if Pac-Man and Tetris had a baby, Squish would be that baby. Now, I think that's a pretty close approximation to this game. It's a maze game. It's a puzzle game. It's a timed game. And if you like those sort of games, man, this is right up your alley. Another interesting tidbit I found on Nintendo Fandom when researching this game was that Squish was never released in Japan, despite being manufactured by Nintendo in Japan. And another thing that I didn't mention was that the model number of this game if you're into that sort of thing, is MG61. So if it wasn't apparent, I am a big fan of Squish. It's in my upper echelon of Nintendo Game & Watch games, and I don't know that it gets much better than this if you are interested in puzzle games. So if you are, maybe keep an eye out for a Squish on your next trip to a flea market or a garage sale or your next perusal around eBay. To wrap up this episode, I'm going to direct you to the show notes where, among other things, you can also find a gameplay video that I shot of my humble little Squish game. I'll show you a playthrough of game A and how that differs from game B and display some of the visuals I discussed in this show. But this has been episode number two of the Game and Cast podcast, and I am your faithful host, Ryan Clater. The original release date of this episode was March 29th, 2021. You can find the Game & Cast podcast on our website, gameandcast.com, that's G-A-M-E-A-N-D-C-A-S-T dot com, or on any podcatching service. We'll see you back here in a couple weeks for the third episode, where we'll dive into another exciting interview with someone else leaving a mark in the dedicated retro handheld gaming community. Until then, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can contact me at the show's email address, ryan at gameandcast.com. Until then, be safe, mask up, and game on. Game on.